Welcome to the Impactful Leadership Show. I'm your host, Greg McDonough. John Lennon once said, a dream you dream alone is only a dream. A dream you dream together is reality. Join me as we connect dreams to reality by chatting with innovators from around Washington, D.C. Our show is proudly sponsored by the D.C. chapter of the Entrepreneurs Organization. This is the Impactful Leadership Show. Welcome to the Impactful Leadership Show. I'm your host, Greg McDonough, the CEO of Blackburn Capital Advisors. Today's guest works exclusively with CEOs, business owners, and their executive teams to maximize their top and bottom line goals. An executive advisor at the Culture Index, the owner of Premier Consulting Services, Adam Larkin. Welcome, Adam. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you on the show. So our show is about leadership. And my favorite question to ask my guests is, tell me about some misconceptions in leadership. Well, sure, Greg, thanks for asking. And, and one of the things that I want to do, and as I tell all of my audiences when I do speaking engagements and podcasts and things like this, is to provide a compelling evidence for people to dig down to my subject matter expertise, which would be human analytics. And within human analytics, we basically spend all of our time studying people and how they act in certain uh, situations, what their tendencies are, and things like that. And so what I want to provide to you today, Greg, are things that I have actually seen either from personal experience or with some of my clients with regard to misconceptions of leadership. So let's hit number one. Uh, the number one misconception is I am never the problem for my employees' lack of performance. All right. So what does that mean? Well, so if you go into Gallup, uh, Gallup is a uh, has a great uh, data and statistics, employee engagement, they do customer engagement, and basically this is a company that just floats on a sea of data. Gallup polls have said, and this is very consistent, Greg, I've been tracking this data for almost 25 years now, it says that 67% of the U.S. workforce is currently disengaged. Mm-hmm. Now, what is a disengaged employee? Well, Greg, when we talk about disengaged employees, these are the type of people that just go to work for the paycheck. So think about the number of employees you have within your own company, divide that by two thirds, and those are the people that are literally going in for the paycheck. Now, if you look at the difference between the engaged and the disengaged employee, an engaged employee is someone that has an ownership mentality. In other words, they believe in the company, they believe in the mission, the vision, and they are tied to that mission and had a lot more fun at work as a result of it. But Greg, the number one reason why there is that much disengagement at work is because of the boss. But why is that? Greg, the, the, the boss tends to treat people like the boss. So in my world of human analytics, Greg, we identify 20 patterns that people are uh, hardwired to be since around the age of 12, which means there is around a 5% chance that the person that reports directly up to me has the exact same personality that I, that I have. Our tendency is to use the golden rule at work, which is to treat others the way that you want to be treated. And if that would be the case, Greg, then I'm going to be missing on those people that are not my personality. So what we try to do, good leaders, and here's the solution is, to treat others the way that they want to be treated. And the best way to do that is to find out. And again, within human analytics, again, the compelling reason is, well, how do you know how to treat other people? And the answer is to use some form of human analytics survey that gives you an insight into how these people are hardwired since the age of 12. And if we do that, then we 
communicate more effectively. We set people up in an environment that allows them to be more successful and we can properly motivate people. People aren't always motivated by what we are. And as a result, if we have someone that isn't performing, when I work with my clients, one of the first questions I ask is, how are you treating this person? Are you communicating more effectively? Are you providing them the answers that they need? Are you responding to their feedback? And if that's the case, then we will end up treating our employees better, which bucks that trend of only a third of our employees would be engaged. So that would be my first one. Okay. Yeah, let, great. Jump in the second one. I've got loads of questions, but let's hear the second one and then we'll, we'll jump back and forth. All right, the second one. All right, now this is a tough one because it is it almost is counterintuitive to what we do as leaders within an organization. I'm going to give you two examples of this. Top performers should be considered for promotion to leadership positions. Okay? Mm. So I'm going to say that again. Top performers should be considered for promotion to leadership positions. All right? Now, here's what I get, Greg, from a lot of my clients. We foster a culture at our work where we promote from within, or we, we look at our internal employees first for promotion. So, Greg, I'll challenge you back. What type of employees do we tend to promote? Our top performers. Our top performers, right? Those people that work hard. And guess what? In certain positions, people will excel based on what they are incredibly good at. I'm going to give you two examples, one on the operation side and one on the revenue generation side. These are real world examples. Okay. All right. For on the operation side, number one, I have a client. It's an engineering firm. Okay. And what we have in this engineering firm, and I'm not going to use the exact names, I'll just say Bob. So Bob has been an engineer for this company for over 15 years. Okay. And as he has grown with the organization and he is an excellent engineer. What he's noticed is, is that this, this engineering firm is also growing. And as they're growing, they're hiring people right out of college. And as they were hiring them right out of college, they are sitting right next to this person with 15 years tenure. They have the exact same title. Pay may or may not be somewhat similar, but they have the same title. And here's a 15-year tenured person sitting next to someone that really doesn't know anything other than the conceptual about engineering. Okay. And so what goes through the engineer's brain is, well, I've been here for 15 years, so I should be in management by now. So I pick up the phone or I walk into my boss's office and I say, Greg, I think I'm ready for management. Right. And then the, the boss says, great. You know what? I was wondering when you were going to come to me because you're one of our best performers. We're going to put you in a leadership role. And that's what happened with, with this engineer. But part of the reason Greg White was a great engineer is because he was an extreme introvert. And the extreme introvert loves data, facts, information, schematics, engineering work. He likes closing the door. He likes people to leave him alone. Well, guess what? He gets put into a leadership position. And now he is having to deal with people, people's problems, people's emotion, having to communicate and talk with more people on a daily basis where before, his great work was defined by the fact that he could do his work by himself. So what we ended up doing, Greg, is we ended up having this person that just gutted it out because he was a great employee and he lasted about a year. And what ultimately happened, he ended up burning out is because he was modifying 
his extreme introversion to become more of an extrovert. And at the end of the day, he just said, you know what? I quit. I'm out. So Adam, digging into that mm -hmm. just a little deeper. Um, and in hindsight, what, how could the management handle that differently? Is it the person doesn't get promoted because they're introverted and that's not where they're going to excel? Or is there some sort of training or talk to us about how going into that, if you knew the data, you knew the information, you knew the type of personality that person is, how could that have handled been handled differently so that employee didn't burn out? So the advice that I provide back to my clients is this, dig into the why someone wants to move into management. If the why of movement into management is, well, Greg, I think I'm supposed to be there because I've been here for a long time. That's not the answer that I'm looking for. What I am looking for is someone to say, well, the reason why I want to be in management, Greg, is because I want to have a broader influence in the organization. I actually want to lead people toward a common goal. This is something that I've been wanting to do for quite a while. And when I had that opportunity to do it, that's also why I've been working so hard for your firm for the last 15 years. Greg, that's what I'm looking for is because that tells me that there is the desire to lead people, not just a checking the box. And this is what I'm supposed to do because my peers are looking at me um, and saying, well, yeah, you're a great individual contributor. Now, here is one of the other pieces of advice that I would provide, which is if they really just want to be recognized for their tenure, then maybe you encourage your organization, your HR department to have a series of tiers within your organization. With this particular employee, probably would have made more sense is instead of promoting him to the manager, is to recognize him as a senior engineer within the organization that recognizes tenure. Maybe you give a little bit of bump in compensation, but it definitely pulls you up at a higher level so that when the young punk coming out of college is sitting right next to him, he's not like, hey, I do the same thing that you do. So those are the two pieces of advice that I would provide. Find out the why, and do we recognize these people for something more than just putting them into a management position? You know, you, you struck a chord, and I see it all the time, um, this scenario playing out, and especially in sales organizations where, you know, the top sales producer gets promoted to a sales manager, and then you're dual-hatting them to be a top producer and a manager of people, and the roles are completely different, right? Salespeople do sales, and sales managers are managing people and training, and they're responsible for people, not the ultimate sale at the end of the day. Greg, that's an excellent segue into my second example. All right. So I have it on the revenue generation side. Now, I work with this guy in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And let me tell you, when I say natural born sales person, there wasn't anyone better. In fact, I enjoyed going on co-rides to watch this person sell to doctors and he would get people to buy things for him. And it wasn't just a, the assertive nature or standing the ground. This He didn't discount. He promoted the value. I would walk away just saying, how did you come up with that particular statement? He's like, I don't know. It just comes out of my mouth. Okay. And this guy knocked it out of the park for three years. He was my best performer for three straight years and was the catalyst to my region being number one in the organization. Okay. 
And because he was that incredible individual performer and because we promote top performers from within, I said, you know what? Let's put this person in a management role. And it was an absolute disaster. Mm. Now, why is that? Well, in sales, we and this was a hunter role, Greg. So in other words, this is an independent person in the field, basically having to go out and do their own thing, keep their eye on the prize, which is gold, total control of every aspect of his day. And then we put him into management. He's no longer in control of his environment. In fact, what he's in control of is less. He's having to spread out the control of the activities that are going on in the day. And as a result, he had to become more reactive to the team. Now, Greg, you're a fully proactive type of a personality yourself. And putting him into management slowed him down and he became very frustrated and Unfortunately, the negative aspects of his personality came out. And as a result, we ended up having to fire him after about eight months. In both of these situations, Greg, we ended up losing voluntarily and involuntarily two incredible employees. So not only do, did we lose the great individual contributor, we also still have an opening for the management position and the one that we just left and maybe not replaced by someone that was as talented or as effective in their role. So going into that, the sales manager, the salesperson to sales manager transition, mm -hmm. if we've got a great individual contributor who doesn't have or doesn't want to manage people, what's, what's the career path or what's the opportunity that we can present to him or her other than just more money? Which, which tends to be a big motivator, but let's assume that's not the motivator. How, how can we develop an environment that allows that individual contributor to continue to grow and prosper? Well, one thing that we find for really good, and I'm just going to focus on the outside sales or independent sales reps, those people that tend to work very independently. We call them highly autonomous individuals. What we do is we go to them and ask them what their goals are, right? Mm. Because if we don't know their goals, then it's really impossible to motivate them because a lot of these people don't like being told to do. That's why they're in independent roles is because they want the freedom to do the things that they want to do. So what I would do, Greg, is, and again, you were one of these highly autonomous individuals, and I know that because of your results, which is I would go to you and say, Greg, where would you like to be in three years? And give you another example. I lost one of my best salespeople as a result of not asking. This guy was number one in the company. And he comes to me. We have lunch. He sits the two-week resignation letter on my desk. And it floored me. My best performer just said, Adam, I'm out. My response was, dude, you're killing it. Why would you leave? And he said, well, because... I really want to get into management. In fact, I want your job and you're not going anywhere anytime soon. So I'm going to another opportunity that affords me the ability to move up because money wasn't as important to him. Moving up was. Greg, my response to that was, why didn't you tell me? He immediately came back to me and said, Adam, why didn't you ask? Sure. That's on me. So again, that even supports Number one, I am never the problem of my employee's performance. That was purely on me because we could have kept a really good employee by me understanding where he wanted to go. And then I could reach out to other leadership within our organization and say, 
I have someone that's looking for an opportunity. Is there one? Can we provide this person options? You know, happy you brought up number one again, because I've been thinking about it um, and, and trying to figure out how people want to be treated, right? Because you're talking about the golden rule, treat yourself, treat others as you treat yourself or you want to mm -hmm. be treated. And it's truly treat them as they want to be treated. Walk us through how you figure out how somebody else wants to be treated if sure. they're not sort of communicating that to you. So, Greg, I can tell you 100% and I'm doing it even now is I am looking at your personality survey results. And the reason why is because I want to treat you the way that you want to be treated, even on this podcast itself. How do we find out? Well, human analytics, it's been around since around 1928, um, has been a part of business for quite a while. Now, back in 1928, a guy by the name of William Moulton Marston created the present-day human analytics, which is understanding how people are hardwired non-clinically. Now, there are several human analytics surveys out there. Culture Index is one. You have uh, DISC, Myers-Briggs. Uh, I was in a presentation. Someone called that Briggs and Stratton. That's a lawnmower, Greg. Uh, Myers-Briggs. We've got... Um, Wonderlick out there, Colby, there's a lot of different ones out there. And with varying degrees of validity, these will tell you what the natural tendencies are of people. And once we have a better understanding of what the tendencies are, then we can predict the behaviors or even the results. Now, Greg, we believe that in 10 to 15 years, when our kids replace us around the boardroom table, we believe that people will be human uh, companies will be using human analytics in some form or fashion to predict financial outcomes, and some already are, because we believe that people are a direct line into your P and L performance. In fact, it is a leading indicator. We have lagging indicator all day long, right? The P and L is a lagging indicator. Um, your pipeline uh, is a is a leading indicator, but the actual sales results are all lagging. That information is easy to get. Human analytics helps us proactively get in front of issues before they occur. And trust me, Greg, I know you have uh, dealt with people. People are a challenge, right? They're not easy. And if it was easy to deal with people, then there wouldn't be 15,000 books on the shelf on leadership and management. <laughs> you know, you, you sparked a big interest of, of mine. I'm right. I'm a finance person um, and I'm, I read lagging indicators all the time and i try to get as close to today as possible um you know with analysis of pipelines and customer conversations and those types of things i had never thought about the human analytics aspect of financial performance so i'd love for you to dive a little bit deeper into that like have you seen examples in which a, a human analytics result then turned into a better financial performance for the business or a business unit? Absolutely. In fact, um, I work with a, a broad range of clients, wealth advisory, construction, marketing, uh, mortgage lending, you name it. I've cut my thumb into it in some form or fashion and currently working with I have a digital marketing company. That was a startup. And in, like a lot of startups, sometimes they change their business models over the course of time. They end up getting a uh, a small series funding 
And their approach was a very passive approach from the revenue generation side. So what they would do is they would end up hiring inside salespeople and hoping that they would generate enough inbound by marketing efforts and Google and things like that, where they could uh, support uh, the business by inbound and just people taking the calls and running with them. The challenge was is that they weren't producing fast enough. If you're a salesperson, you know that sales don't come to you. You have to go get them. And this is what this company decided very, uh, very early within their life cycle. And so they came to me and said, "Hey, Adam, this is what we would like to dis- this is what we would like to do. We actually want to switch our revenue generation from inbound to more outbound, and we're looking for the right types of personalities to do it." do we have anyone on our current team that fits that bill? Now, Greg, within our business, we don't just identify people. We also identify the position and we pull that directly out of people's brains to say, what are the characteristics that we want for a position? Then we match up the position and the employee. If we have a really good match, then we can reasonably expect that the behaviors are going to be positive and you can see results after that. Unfortunately, to this particular client, I had to say, I'm sorry, but you don't have any of the right types of personalities because these people are hardwired to sit at a desk, accept a call, and then provide information back, which quite honestly is really, really different than going out and getting sales. This was about two years ago. They switched their entire business model from inbound to outbound, and as a result, They ended up getting a $30 million Series A funding, and they're getting ready to hire on top of their original 15 outside people to 22. So now they're going to have 37 outside people because the revenue generation by switching that model and using the right types of people has allowed them to grow in a way that their initial investors say, we've got a winner here. We're going to uh, invest more money in them. That's powerful. That's powerful. So when we were chatting just before I hit record, you mentioned you had three misconceptions. Mm-hmm. I'll take two us to run out of time before we jump into the number three. Sure. So what was your number? Th- what's your third one? All right. So here's a, this is a tough one as well. I, I really try to get them off the wall ones, Greg, because we, we deal with them all day long, but rarely do you see much uh, in an article about this. So here we go. Complaining and griping is bad. <laughs> Complaining and griping is bad. Well, guess what, Greg? Feedback is feedback, okay, Mm. right? And any type of feedback to me is a benefit to my business. Now, the right, so the thing about feedback, so I have a client construction company down in Miami and they're running a, they're running a, uh, an initiative right now called feedback, right? In other words, they want to go into their company and get the right type of feedback. They're doing surveys, they're using culture index, they're using, uh, gap surveys and gap analyses and things like that, which is fine. Okay. 50% of the world want to be heard. These are your natural team players. They want to be heard because their input benefits the rest of the team. The other 50% want to have a broader influence in company goals. Now, how do we know this? Well, again, this is where the human analytics comes into play. The 50% of the people that want to be heard, they're asked for feedback all the time. And they want to provide that feedback. But what they want to know is that you did something with the feedback. Okay. 
And again, with griping and complaining, that is actually a form of feedback. Okay, so I'm going to give you a solution here in just a second. But the reason why I point out the 50-50 of 50% want to be heard, 50% want to influence company goals. Those are two totally different motivators for feedback and why they should be addressed. Mm. Okay. Now, I encourage the feedback even when it's bad. Now, I'll give you a little story. I used to work um, uh, for a gentleman named Bill. This was way back in the day, uh, back in 1998, um, right around the dot-com boom. This guy made a ton of money, got out of business, didn't need to work. I started working for another guy. He was my boss for a couple of years. And I remember going to Bill because I just had gotten out of uh, out of school. And I remember going to Bill's office and say, Bill, I have a problem. And Bill said, oh, okay, great. And he had this little clear box of those plastic monkeys that connect their arms. Are you familiar with that? Yeah. Right. Now, I'll send you a link uh, to, uh, you know, if you want to buy some of those off of Amazon. So if you or any of your listeners want to buy this and use this, you can. He slid the box across to me and said, Adam, grab a monkey. So I did. So here I've got a monkey in my hand. I'm like, what do I do with it now? And he goes, when you can find a solution to your problem, bring me my monkey back and we'll talk. So did a 180, walked out of his office, went back to my office and brought together a solution. And then when I had the problem and the solution, I brought Bill his monkey back, dropped it in, and he helped me solve that. But Greg, sometimes I would walk into Bill's office, I would say, excuse me, wouldn't say a word, and just grab one of the monkeys out of his box. And I would look at him and say, Bill, I'll be back. <laughs> right? The reason why is because I knew he was not going to respond to my problem until I had at least thought of at least one solution that I could bring back to them. So let me go back to the original thing, which is complaining and griping is bad. This is feedback. To some, it is to help your business improve. To some, it is I am overworked because of this particular thing. If we can foster an environment within our business where we encourage people to not only give us the complaints and gripes, but have an associated solution to whatever problem it is, then we may be able to solve these problems faster. Greg, the ultimate result of me getting those plastic monkeys was not Bill helping me with problems. Sometimes I solved the problem before I needed to walk into Bill's office. The advice I provide back to my clients is this. If you're going to get feedback, then communicate back what you heard and what you did about it. So, I accept griping and complaining as good feedback because it tells me that there is a problem. That problem, Greg, may be me, right? Again, being the boss, I'm the leader of the organization. As a result, it might be a complaint about me, which is fine. Again, this is self-improvement. But if you take it a step further, which is letting and communicating to your employees that A, we took the feedback and we heard it, we did something with it, and here's what we did or going to the person that wants more company influence and saying, because of your feedback and solution, you have influenced the broader organization. If you do not do this, Greg, and you dismiss negative feedback and say, stop complaining, then this is what happens. The next time you want to get feedback, you don't get it. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's spot on, Adam. I'm curious, 
Do you also see that with customer feedback? You know, I've got, I work with a, a client that runs a nail salon and every once in a while there's a Yelp, you know, something went wrong or they were just unhappy and it's somebody sitting behind a screen typing a message onto, onto Yelp. And mm -hmm. part of her wants to just shut her computer down. Part of her wants to respond. So my curiosity is, do, do you see the same need for recognition and acceptance for feedback is feedback when it comes to customers to business? I think so. I mean, that is, you know, you have a little bit more control in the environment of leader to employee versus, mm. versus customer to provider, because what feedback you tend to get the majority of the time from customers is the negative, right? right. Uh, however, you know, uh, I bought online. I'm sure you have as well several times. Um, and what I find interesting is when I go into websites and you'll have the feedback or the reviews for the product and things like that. What I find interesting is the people or the, the companies that actually respond to those that complain within the review thread. I find that very valuable because that tells me that the, the, the provider of the product or service cares about what their people say is or their especially their customers, when they're complaining and griping, it may be a miscommunication or maybe it wasn't something that was clear. In fact, you may see someone say, well, thank you for the feedback. In fact, based on your question, we have included a summary of what this particular product or service does where we didn't before that will actually solve that problem for customers moving forward. So again, that is the clear communication back that when someone gives you feedback that you've done something with it. That is almost as important as just gathering the feedback because that's what we tend to do, Greg, is we get all the feedback and then we don't do anything with it or we do something with it and the majority of our employees don't know what we did. That's, in yeah. fact, quite honestly, brother, I believe that's the biggest challenge that we have in leadership these days is not communicating the things of why we do and what we are doing. That's very well, very well said. So, Adam, changing... Uh, angles here a little bit. I'm curious. It must be my favorite word of the day, but um, how did you end up in human analytics? Is this something you were 12 years old and you realized you wanted to do for the rest of your life? Talk to us about how your journey of, of getting into this uh, profession, running your business. Tell us about sure. your past and your history. Greg, I'm a, nat I'm a natural born sales guy. I always have been. That's always been my calling. In fact, my first entrepreneurial sales gig was selling peanut M&Ms to door to door when I was uh, raising funds. And let me tell you, I kicked some some major uh, butt uh, in my uh, Gardner Park Elementary School with regards to selling. Now, I won't deny, Greg, that I eat a few boxes of peanut M&Ms. <laughs> yes, I did. However, <laughs> however. Um, that is something that uh, I've always wanted to do. What I found interesting, Greg, is that I have been doing human analytics from really when I initially got out of college. The company that I worked for was using DISC at the time, and I really liked it. In fact, I thought it was something that was very helpful uh, to help me know a little bit more about myself. And I've used it in some form or fashion over the last 25 years. However, in 2016, I was a part of a large cap merger and acquisition. So, Greg, setting up the environment, two 250-employee companies, head-to-head -head competitors. One day, we are trying to steal each other's business. The next day, we were on the same team, and it was a disaster. In 2016, we lost 100 of our 400 commercial salespeople. 
100. That's 25%. Wow. We ended up with a top line problem of at-risk revenue of around $25 million with the bottom line $5 million EBITDA issue basically overnight. And I got introduced to the Culture Index program on a failed business relationship. So what when I ran into an engagement, and you saw the one that I did in D.C. not too long ago, the person that was standing in front of me introduced human analytics in a way that I'd never seen it before. In fact, what they allowed us to do when we started working with Culture Index as a, as a client, which is we didn't know who we had. We didn't know why people did the things that they did. So we got the surveys associated with them doing that. And then we started replacing the uh, open positions with people that mimicked or were similar to the characteristics of our top performers. So that's how I got into Culture Index. It was through a lot of pain or through a lot of overwork uh, because, Greg, we got into a situation when our hiring philosophy was bad breath is better than no breath. And that is not a fun place to be. I couldn't agree with you more. Um, so another favorite question of mine, Adam, is if you were going to give your a younger version of yourself some advice through all your experience, what advice would that be? So I thought I thought pretty hard about this. Um, the first thing is is that to to buy Amazon and a lot of it in 1998. <laughs> that would be the first thing. All right. Um, I think probably I would tell my younger self right now is to get into owning a business sooner than I did. I am the type of person that should should have been running my own business earlier in my career. Instead, I decided to move into the larger company, which I was because I thought my ambition was moving up the chain and getting into higher levels uh, within the organization, which I did. But what I found was is that there wasn't as much freedom and autonomy that I wanted as a person. Now I have that wisdom. Uh, almost five years ago, I started my own consulting firm and is now a successful consult consulting firm. And I've been doing this. Uh, and Greg, I haven't had more fun in my career other than the last five years of my career because I am now in my sweet spot. I have the ability to uh, control my own destiny, control my own hours, do the things that I want to do. The other thing that I that and one of the questions that you asked me is what gets me excited which is winning. I love to win, Greg. And when I'm winning, that means I am fulfilled. But also when I'm helping my clients win as well, this is something that allows me to have a, a very high level of joy, which leads into my mission statement, Greg, that I shared with you a couple of three weeks ago, which is I want to inspire and empower people to succeed with joy. The succeeding with joy piece is probably the most important because I have had success in my career in the past where on December 31st, I would look back at that entire year and just realize I had zero fun doing it. I made a pile of cash. I had a lot of good wins, but at the end of the day, I just didn't have any fun doing it. I don't want that for you. I don't want it for your, your clients or their employees. And this is something that allows me to do that. But so again, Circling back, what I would have told myself, get into starting and running your own business because I didn't understand what my risk tolerance was. I have a very high level of risk tolerance. And if I didn't succeed, that means I wouldn't have stopped. It just means I would have continued to try to succeed. Certainly. That's what I would have that, told myself. 
That's awesome. Um, yeah, you know, it's interesting. You mentioned your mission statement and success with joy. Um, you know, I have conversations with my wife in particular about retirement. And my response is always, I retired years ago, right? Because I love what I do. This isn't, doesn't yep. feel like work, right? Podcasting is fun. This is just something we do on the side. But my actual job that I get paid for, I love it. And I yep. wake up excited and I get through my day and I talk to my children about entrepreneurship and about building their businesses and all the opportunities they can have. And so that's very similar energy around um, that creativity, start early, take some risks, make some mistakes. It's, it's spot on and I love it. Yeah. Well, Adam, it's been great having you on the show. I think we could talk for hours and hours and hours, um, but you've got work to do and I've got things to do as well. Um, right. I also like to keep our podcast in consumable bites. Um, we've given, you've given some amazing tidbits on human uh, analytics, your culture index. It's a very, very powerful tool that I'm only getting my toes in uh, at the moment. And I look forward to learning more. Well, thank you for having me. Um, and if someone wanted to, to reach out to me again, I'll provide you some information. Um, Again, Adam Larkin, Executive Advisor with Culture Index. My email is alarkin at cultureindex.com. Be happy to talk to you. Um, and thank you again for having me, Greg. It's been an honor. It's, it's been my honor. And, and your contact information will be in the show notes for those of you who are, are trying to hit rewind to capture down his, his email address. Um, I would encourage you, audience, to, to dig into this because it is a very powerful tool that's going to help you in the future. So again, Adam, thank you for sharing your wisdom with us. And that's a wrap, my friends. Thank you for spending your time with me. For show notes and other episodes, visit us at impactfulleadershipshow.com. One last food for thought. Walk on with hope in your heart and you'll never walk alone.